0: Take your Bibles and turn back with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. As we read earlier, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. In this passage, Peter gives us as believers two commands for how we are to live our time on this earth. The first we looked at on Wednesday. So if you weren't here Wednesday, find someone who was and get the notes from them. But it goes something similar to this and I'm gonna sum it up in about two minutes and everybody on Wednesday is gonna be like, man, why couldn't you have done that on Wednesday? (laughs) Or the Sunday school, men's Sunday school will be like, oh, he does know how to not talk for a long time. But first, Peter tells us, commands us to live for Christ's return. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because of our great salvation, as believers, we should live in preparation for the completion of that salvation. Doing so by girding up the loins of our mind preparing ourselves for the battle that is our Christian life pulling in the loose ends of one's thinking by rejecting the hindrances of this world but also living for the light of Christ's return by being sober living with self-restraint being in controls of our priorities And not being intoxicated with the various allurements of this world. The second command that we will look at from the passage this morning. How as believers we are to pass our time on this earth. Is that we are to live in our relation to the Trinity. God the Father God the Son, and God the Spirit. So how do we live, first of all, in the light of the Father? Recognizing that God is our Father. Peter starts this verse saying, And if ye call on the Father. It's a clear way of saying, if you are a believer... If you are saved, if you are a Christian, God is your Father. What a privilege that is. That God is our Father. The concept of God as Father is found in the Old Testament. But when you read through the Old Testament... God is known primarily and prayed to as Jehovah, Elohim, the Lord, God, or the Lord God. And yet, when his disciples ask Christ to teach us to pray, in the Sermon on the Mount, six times in that model prayer that Christ gives in his teachings on prayer, he says, Pray to your Father. Pray in this manner. Our Father, when you pray in secret to your Father, your Father who sees in secret will hear thee and reward you openly. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Those two syllables, Abba, if you can remember back to when your child first learned to speak. You know, they make lots of gruntings and screamings to begin with. And I don't know if your household was anything like our household, but there's always that competition. What is the first word going to be? Mama? Or dada? I won. (laughs) Twice. We saved the best for last. But those two simple syllables, dada, daddy, abba. You know, there's a difference when your mother growing up would say, wait till your father gets home. A phrase that was never used at my house. And daddy's home. That relationship that is there. And as believers, the Spirit is in us and we can go to our Heavenly Father. God is the Father who is always only good. And as such, as believers, we should strive to live lives that please our Father. Not just doing good so we don't get caught, so we don't have to worry about the punishment You know, as younger children, that's part of our desire to obey is to not get punished. But as we grow and as we mature, we start to figure out, okay, how can I get that attaboy from dad? That's our Heavenly Father. Are we living our lives to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? God is our Father, but we also see in this passage, God is not only Father, but God is the impartial judge. If ye call on God the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work. Notice this description of the Father that Peter gives. God is impartial. God does not judge us based on our looks. He doesn't judge us based on our language, based on our skin tone, based on our ethnicity, based on our wealth or lack thereof. God does not judge us based on our gender. He doesn't judge us based on our political parties. God is an impartial judge. And as believers, we are to live our lives so that we are not partially judging others either. In James chapter 2, James writes, verse 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand over there. Or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced or convicted by the law as transgressors. You know, as we go through life and we make observations of individuals. Are we judging them based on how their outward appearance is? Or do we see them the way that God sees them? They are individuals who were created in the glory of God, in the image of God. Individuals who have had, because of sin, both Hereditary and by choice, that image of God marred. Broken individuals who are seeking answers and oftentimes seeking in the wrong place. But we as believers have the answers. Because God is not only impartial, but Peter also describes him as the impartial Judge, who convicts based on our works. If God is that impartial judge, and he is, what is the end result for the lost world outside our doors? What is the end result of our neighbors who may not listen to the same music choices we listen to or who may not have the same standards of dress that we listen to? God is going to judge them for those decisions, because does God want them to be punished? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And oftentimes in my own mind, and I'll put myself on the chopping block here, it's easy to see someone who is dressed a certain way, or enjoying certain activities that I myself would not, and I think, oh man, they are a dirty, rotten sinner. God is going to judge them. And I forget that God desires that they come to repentance. God is the impartial judge. We ought to see people as God sees them, slaves to sin both by birth and by choice, changing how we view people, should then change the way that we treat people. In 2019, February, a Barna poll revealed that 95-90% to of practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus. That same group said that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know about Jesus. And to know Jesus, nearly a hundred percent of all Christians, witnessing is important, and the best thing that can happen is for someone to come to know Jesus. But that same group, nearly half of millennials, despite the near unanimity of believing that witnessing is part of the Christian faith, nearly half of millennials agreed that at least it is somewhat wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith. And before we get upset and mad at the millennials because those young kids are bad people, a little over one quarter of the Gen Xers and 20% of the boomers and elders have that same belief. Witnessing is important. The best thing that could happen is for someone to learn about Jesus and someone to come to know Jesus. But it would be wrong for me to tell them that. Penn Gillette of the Penn & Teller Comedy Illusion Team in Vegas is an avowed atheist. But he posted a video to his website back in 2008. And I would encourage you to watch the video in its entirety. But he posted this video in which he recounts the story of a Christian businessman who came up to him after a show in Vegas and gave him a New Testament and tried to share the gospel with him after the show. And these are his exact words. Quote, If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell, and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, And you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, but that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this, eternal life, is more important than that. Remember the first time I watched that? The Holy Spirit's conviction. Because too often I get myself in my Christian headset and I need to live a certain way and I need to make sure that I am separate from sin, which is true, but I do that to the point where I am ignoring the images of God that are surrounding me, who are on their way to an eternity in hell if we truly believe that fallen man is to stand before the impartial judge and to be judged based on his works, should that not change how we live our lives as Christians? To give the gospel to them. It may make things awkward, yes. But is eternal life more important than an awkward situation? Peter tells us living in the light of the Father. He is our Father. He is the impartial judge. And we should live our life in the light of fear. Passing the time of your sojourning here in fear. If we are saved, we should live in fear. Fear of what? Not fear of the penalty of losing one's salvation because that is not possible. The idea here is we should be living our lives in a holy reverence to God. Because as Peter mentioned in the earlier verses, God is holy. And we are to be holy because he is holy. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews tells us, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, the psalmist tells us that we are to serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Recognizing that the impartial judge is not just going to judge the unsaved, but we are also, as believers, going to stand before him in judgment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us, Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. As believers, we are to live recognizing that God is our Father. Striving to live our lives in such a way to please our Father. But also recognizing that He is the impartial judge who will judge all of us at the end times. That those neighbors around us, relatives that we may have, who do not know Him as Savior... We'll be judged for that, for all eternity. Are we living our lives giving the gospel to others? but also recognizing that I am going to stand before that same impartial judge, to be judged for how I live on this world? Am I going to, as Paul tells us, have gold, silver and precious stones? Or will my works be as wood, hay, and stubble? As believers, we are to live in the light of the Father, but secondly, we are to live on this earth in light of the Son, recognizing, first of all, that we are redeemed. Ye you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, Peter says, but with the precious blood of Christ. Knowing that we are redeemed. The assurance of complete understanding is based on fact and not on feeling. You know, we can have days, if we're honest, where it may feel like God does not love us, where it may feel like we are not saved there can be seasons of our life where because of our sins we have wandered from god and we don't feel it there are other times where trials that we are going through cause our emotions to trump the reality but peter tells us ye know in 1 John chapter 5 verses 11 through 13, John tells us this is the record. This is what is written down eternally that God has given to us eternal life. And there are times where we may be going through this life where we don't feel like we are saved and we don't desire to live for him because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. But we need to control ourselves with the fact that as a believer, if I have put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I have been redeemed. Knowing that we are redeemed, being bought from bondage. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy that there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself... A ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus gave himself so that he could redeem us. Because before we're saved, we are all going to be judged by that impartial God. But how can we, the offending party, be reconciled, be redeemed? It is only through the ransom that Christ himself paid Christ, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us. And not only did he become our sin, but he also suffered the eternal wrath of that impartial judge and Holy Father for our sins so that he would redeem us, buy us back. The fact that we are redeemed gives us, there are two inferences that we can draw. If as a believer I am redeemed, that tells me that there is something that has made a need for redemption. And that is my sin. That is my rebellion against God. But if Christ is the one who has to redeem me, that tells me, secondly, not only is there something that I need to be redeemed from, but I cannot do it on my own. And we look at the world around us and there are individuals who are trying to please God, trying to purchase their own salvation based on good works, based on doing things. And that's not enough. But we have the precious truth that Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, who knew no sin, became sin and paid that penalty to redeem us. And we can give that truth to the world around us. We are to live in light of the recognition of the great redemption that God has provided for us. Recognizing that we are redeemed, but secondly, recognizing from what we are redeemed. Peter tells us that we were redeemed from our vain conversation, received by tradition from our fathers. Vain conversation, aimless conduct. An empty life. Without Christ, what is our purpose? Why are we here? In 2017, a couple of surveys were done to try to discover what gives people's lives a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. The top three answers were family, career, and money. Is that all that we're here for? Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, records how he attempted to live his life to gain all the wisdom and knowledge. He attempted to live his life for amusement, for happiness, fully devoting himself to work or to accumulating wealth. And after everything that he set his mind to do, every purpose that he tried to live for for this life, he comes to the same conclusions for everything It is a vexation of the Spirit. It is a vanity. It doesn't provide happiness. It doesn't provide us purpose. That's what Christ redeemed us from. He redeemed us from a purposeless life to a life full of purpose. Empty, vain conversations received by the traditions of your Father our redemption gives us purpose. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According as he, the Father, has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In chapter 2, verse 10 of Ephesians, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are redeemed from a purposeless life. So because we are redeemed because of the work of the Son, we should live our lives for the purpose that He has called us to. Not to desire to be re-ensnared by the temptations of our former life. Living because of what we were redeemed for, but also, thirdly, recognizing how we are redeemed. We were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. You know, we see people all around us who are striving to accumulate as much as they can. He who has the most gold dies with the most gold wins. And those things that we value, Peter says they're corruptible. They're purposeless. They're pointless. They're nothing. But instead, we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. The one in whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, or the author of Hebrews tells us, The blood of bulls and of goats, the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. But how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living King. We've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, The one who as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Before God made us. Before creation occurred. Before Adam and Eve even sinned. God had established a plan to redeem us. But Christ was made manifest in these last times for you. As Paul refers to it in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to redeem us. Why? So that our faith and our hope might be in God, not in ourselves. Living in light of the Son, the One who redeemed us, the One who redeemed us from a purposeless life, who gives us purpose. The one who redeemed us with the most precious thing, that can be, His own blood. But we're looking at living in light of the Trinity, so we can do the math. There's three. We've done two. Living in light of the Spirit, living in light of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us in verse 22, seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying through the truth, or obeying the truth. Through the Spirit. Living in the light of our purification. You have purified your souls. This is both a one time event that occurs when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but it's also a continual process on our account. When we get saved, that doesn't make us sinless. We continue to go through life, we continue to struggle, we continue to fall. So we need to be continuously purifying ourselves by confessing those sins to the one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Being confident, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1, of this very thing, that he which hath begun the good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, purifying our souls through the obedience of the truth, Or in other words, our obedience to the truth of the Scriptures is a demonstration of our purification. We don't have the time to look at it this morning, but Paul's analogy of putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Ephesians chapter 4. This obedience is enabled by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 3 that we are saved not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit or the renewing through the working of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When can we use up all of that renewing of the Spirit The answer is we can't. Our living in light of our purification is motivated by an unfeigned love, it is a sincere love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The purity of life which we are commanded to live by is not to be lived alone, but rather is to be shared. One of the reasons why we gather together on Sundays for Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and come back in the middle of the week after we've been exhausted from a long day of work, to gather together as believers is because of the love that we are to have for one another. Love is the greatest expression of our obedience. As Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, by this love, by obeying this command, shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye love, have love one to another, purifying our lives through the working of the Spirit to an unfeigned love that we are commanded to grow. Peter uses the word fervently, and the idea here is to stretch one's limits. You ever had one of these Stretch Armstrong dolls? (laughs) No, they were for guys, so they couldn't be dolls. But you give your somebody one end of it and you take the other end and you see how far you can stretch it to the end of its limits. And that's the idea here that Peter is getting at as believers. Okay, yes, I love, I can tolerate most of you in this room. No, that's not the idea. The idea is loving the brothers as Christ loved us. Sacrificially loving if necessary. Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 10, be kindly affectioned to one, one to another with brotherly love. In Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue or abound. And I know what some are thinking, if you had brothers growing up, oh good, I didn't love my brother that much. And That's not the idea here either. It's not that we love each other as if we were brothers, but because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, We do love one another. With siblings, there are times where you can grate on each other's nerves. You know the right buttons to push to frustrate and irritate. But there also comes a point when somebody outside of the family is picking on a sibling, and no matter how aggravated or irritated you are with that sibling, they're family, so you step in the gap for them. And as believers, that's how we're to be living. The spirit that is regenerating us, living our light, our life that way, living in the light of the new life that the spirit gives us. Peter tells us we are born again, not of a corruptible seed, but a seed that is incorruptible by the word of God that lives and abideth forever. Having been given a new life from God, we then ought to be engaged in new activities which please him. We are redeemed by an incorruptible seed. Our first birth, our human birth, came from a corrupted seed. But our new birth comes from a seed that is incorruptible. Through the Scriptures, through the truth of God's Word. It is through the Word that the Spirit produces life. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. James 1.18, of His own will begat He us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures, being in the Scriptures which are alive. I don't know about you, but there are times in life when you can sit down and read the Scriptures and it doesn't seem to affect you. Or you can pray and it seems like the heavens are silent. The word of God is quick, it's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. God's word itself is living and contains the life-giving power, which means it is applicable to every aspect of our lives. The truth of God's Word is what is necessary for us to grow. In chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Peter, Peter tells us that as newborn babes, we should desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. If you think back to the days of an infant in your house, you know when that infant is hungry. You don't have to ask. There are times when that hunger comes when you're trying to get rest, but that child lets you know, hey, I'm hungry. That's the desire that we as believers are to have for God's word. Desiring God's word, recognizing that it is through the truth and as the spirit illuminates that truth in our lives, as believers, we can grow. So how then are we to live our lives while we're on this, this earth, living in light of the Trinity? In light of the Father, first of all, is he your Father? Have you placed your trust in him, accepted him as Savior? Are we living our lives recognizing that he is the impartial judge and as such giving the gospel to those around us? living our lives recognizing that He demands a holy reverence from us and that we too will stand before Him as the impartial judge? Are we living in light of the sun? Is He your Redeemer? Has He purchased you back from the slave market of sin? Are we living our life differently than before we were redeemed? Are we living our lives for the purpose that God, that Christ has redeemed us for? Do we live in recognition of how we were redeemed? Not with the corruptible things that we place our value in, but with the incorruptible, pure blood of the Son. Are we living our lives in relation to the Spirit? Has He done a purifying work in you? and if so are we living in light of that purified life spending the time in his word so that we may grow if god is not your father if christ has not redeemed you if you have not been purified speak to myself speak with one of the deacons after the service we would love to show you from god's word how he can be your father for those of us who are saved are we living our, light, our lives in light of the Holy Trinity? Father God, we thank you that we can come before you as our Father. I pray that you would help us to live our lives in such a way that we are living pleasing to you. In Christ, we thank you for redeeming us with your precious blood. May we live for the purpose that you have called us to. Spirit, we thank you for the purifying work that you do in our lives. And I pray that you would continue to convict us through the truth of the word of the Father. So that we may live pure lives for you. As we live our lives on this earth. We ask these things in the name of the Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.